0: Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. We uh, continue to work our way through the miracles of Jesus through the gospel of Matthew. Um, We uh, went through the miracles of John on Sunday evenings. Uh, We are now turning our attention to our daily reading. So if you uh, we ran out of books last week, which is a good problem to have. We've ordered more. They'll be in tomorrow. Um, So uh, if you're here throughout the week or Wednesday, if not next week, uh, we'll have those available for you. I've been really pleased with the response with the books and the daily reading. I've gotten messages and and the Sunday school classes and Wednesday night Bible study was really encouraging uh, that we are going to read through the Bible together as a, uh, a community of believers. I think this would be good for all of us uh, to do that. So thank you, Sunday school teachers, in adjusting things. Uh, thank you, uh, members and guests alike who are reading the Bible. The number one key to spiritual growth is reading the Bible. You don't need a sermonary degree to learn that, right, and to know that. It's the single most important thing. So I'm excited we're able to do this for the next nine months. With that, if you will stand with me on a Rev. for God's Word, page 864 of your pew Bibles. And, of course, if you don't have a Bible, take that home with you, or we can provide a nicer one for you. We want to start in verse 21. The evangelist Matthew writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord Son of David, my daughter severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, we ask, as always, you open our hearts. We would receive your word, our mind, that we would understand it, our eyes, that we would see your glory, our ears, that we would hear and heed, our mouth, that we would speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves, to one another in love, and to this lost and dying world that so desperately needs to know the truth and love of Jesus. May you open our hands and our feet, that we will be obedient to you, and be transformed by the gospel. May I decrease that so you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'll never forget those words he said to me, a man who I had come to look up to for a while now, who was a a, a man aging, but still was a man of great strength and honor and respect, a Navy veteran. He said, at that moment in my life, all I could think of was how I wish I could see my loved ones one more time. This Navy veteran was on his ship Out in the ocean, serving as a blockade, keeping Soviet Union ships from coming to Cuba. And of course, was the Cuba Missile Crisis. And those of you who've been around for a few hundred years, you probably remember it well. Here, John F. Kennedy was president against the Soviets, and there was a real threat of setting up missiles that were capable of hitting the United States and is the closest this world has ever gotten thus far to actual nuclear warfare. And this man of the church I've served at previously said that I was convinced today is the day I die. And if it doesn't come from these other ships, from the Soviets, it'll certainly come by nuclear blasts. I wish I could see my loved ones one more time. That's a desperate moment to be in. But he also commented that that was a real turning point in his life, a real turning point in his faith journey. He had grown up a, a good Christian boy, like many good Christian boys from the South was. But he said that at this point, faith had been a part of him. But after this experience in the Cuban Missile Crisis, faith became his identity. He went from being a good Christian boy to a grown Christian man. And so dedicated the rest of his life to the local church and to the cause of Christ in his life. Desperation has a way of changing us. And what we see throughout the Gospel of Matthew is that those who come to Jesus, those who confess the true identity of Jesus, come to him because they are desperate Consider the stories we've looked at thus far in Matthew's gospel. Chapter 8, verse 2, we meet a leper that is cleansed. He, he comes as, a, as an outcast and, and as an unwanted guest. He is desperate for healing. The centurion servant who interceded on behalf of his slave is desperate that this young child that he loves would be healed. The calming of the storm of the disciples in chapter 8, and then as we saw last week, chapter 14, they are desperate for redemption. The paralytic is, is laid down through the, the roof of the house and, and Jesus sees the desperation of the man who, who will never walk again unless God intercedes on his behalf. A desperate man. The Raising of the dead girl. Jesus, if you would just come and lay your hands on her, my little girl would live again. A desperate father. Along the way, a desperate but bleeding woman believes that if she just touches the hem of Jesus, she clings to him, she would be cleansed. Two blind men healed along the way, followed by the feeding of 5,000 starving men, women and children over and over and over again. Those who encounter Jesus with a desperate faith find in Jesus all that they long for and desire. Desperation and faith are the two things that that connect each of these miracles. Unless one came to Jesus with complete and utter desperation, no miracle would take place. And remember that these miracles illustrate something for us about Jesus. Yes, uh, it means that Jesus is God, for only God can do these things. But These, these, these miracles also give us a hint about the gospel. They, they, they help us to understand what the gospel is and does. Those who are healed by Jesus are those most desperate for Jesus. So too, those who are redeemed by Christ are those most desperate for him. Notice how this scene begins in verse twenty-one to twenty-two. Uh, simply call we we'll call it the scene because it has to alliterate with the next point, right? Otherwise, it's not inspired by by, by God. So the scene here, verses twenty-one to twenty-two, and 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 we, we, we don't have time to to connect it to everything else that is taking place, but but the narrative shifts out of Galilee into a Gentile region of Phoenicia, and so Jesus is is between Tyre and Sidon. And he seems to be wanting to get some rest and to get away from the crowd. We talked about that last week. Jesus, this is a pattern of him that, that he he takes the time to find rest and relaxation and time to, to rejuvenate himself. Remember, he though divine, he is equally human. And is also a time for him to get away with his disciples privately and to teach them. And so he seems to be sneaking away in the Gentile territory. And right away in verse 22, he's confronted by a Gentile. Not surprising. He's in Gentile region. This is a Canaanite, a Syrophoenician woman whose daughter is demonized. Now this, we should remember, is an idol-worshiping pagan, uh, just like all the other ones in the area. And we can surmise that she has tried everything, as we all would, to help her little girl. And as an idol-worshipping pagan, no doubt she has turned to them for intervention, for comfort, for help, and for healing. And notice how she addresses Jesus there in verse 22. Lord, Son of David. Now, we've talked about this language in the past, right? Right? The son of David language is clearly royal, right? It is is, uh, the language reserved for a king. Remember that David is the ideal king of Israel. And the promise was made to David that a king would sit forever on his throne. And so in calling Jesus son of David, she is confessing that he is royalty. And not just royalty, but he is Messiah. So you have a Gentile woman extolling the heir to the Jewish throne. Something is happening here, right? Right? In fact, if we were to study the use of this phrase, the Son of Man, it's striking who has used this phrase. The first is the blind men in Matthew chapter 9, right? Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men call out, have mercy on us, Son of David. Likewise, we see the crowd crying, can this be the Son of David? Now, that phrase, as we said previously, when we looked at the the two blind men, is it is clearly a messianic term. Later, Jesus will ask, "'What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he?' And they say he is the son of David. So Matthew wants us to see that, yes, this is royal language on the one hand, but it's royalty with, with, with the Messiah. It is the eternal Messiah who will come to rule and reign over Israel and, if you read the prophets, over the world. And the only people thus far to confess Jesus as that individual are two blind men who can't see him and this woman here who is desperate for him. Lord, Son of David. In fact, we could even look at the word Lord there, couldn't we? The primary people to refer to Jesus as Lord thus far come to Jesus seeking healing. Let me give you two examples of these in chapter 8. The first is the leper, right? We talked about him. He comes to him and he says, Lord, if you will make me clean. Or there is the centurion servant, right? He comes and, 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 and he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed. Will you come and heal him? Remember that that, that man understands what lordship means. He as a centurion uh, understands there are people under him. He says, do this and they do it. So too, if Jesus is Lord over creation, Lord over the universe, he can merely speak the act of creation and his servant will be healed. Notice, however, that in all these examples, who is not claiming Jesus to be Lord and Son of David, church-going folk, the religious folk, who have read their Bible, the Pharisees probably have the Old Testament memorized. It's amazing, They, they have all the evidence in front of them, and yet, yet they haven't confessed who he really is. Why? Because they're not desperate for Jesus. They're not seeking their Messiah. They think they have everything they need already. So the story moves from the scene to the sheep in verses 23 to 28. Notice Jesus' infamous response in verse 23. He did not answer her a word. His disciples came to him saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Notice Jesus begins by not saying anything. He completely ignores her. That doesn't seem right, does it? After all, who does Jesus think he is? He shouldn't be ignoring her. But the reason he ignores her is very important. You've got to grasp this. He ignores her because she does not deserve him. She does not deserve him. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus has no obligation to love her, no obligation to show her compassion, no obligation to listen to her or heal her. He doesn't have to do any of this. She is a Syrophoenician Gentile pagan. Jesus owes her nothing. Now, the reason we recoil at such a suggestion is quite obvious, isn't it? If Jesus isn't obligated to her, maybe we fear he isn't obligated to me. And of course, he's not. Has it ever crossed your mind that Jesus owes you absolutely nothing? But since we have emasculated God, we've we've inverted the relationship. God owes me, and I'll give him the crumbs. But that's not the case at all. Jesus owes this woman here, in her desperate situation, nothing whatsoever. And the truth is, Jesus owes you and me nothing whatsoever. If he chose to ignore us, so be it. God is not obligated to answer our prayers. God isn't obligated to even hear our prayers. He's not obligated to show you mercy. He's not obligated to you or I for anything. You know what he is obligated to do? To judge rebellion and to condemn sinners. He's not obligated to do all the other stuff. And by emasculating God, we've turned Jesus into a lovable hug bear instead of the divine Lord that he really is. She comes in desperation. Jesus says, I don't owe you anything. Who do you think you are? Consider and pause for a minute our own prayers. How often we think, well, Jesus will do this for me because I've got a really good spiritual resume. And none of that is true. God owes you and me everything. Absolutely nothing. In fact, notice what he he, he explains himself there. uh, Verse 24, he he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So so he he, he gives his reasoning for ignoring her. You are not the mission, lady. I was sent to the sheep. Now, we should pause here and consider this language that Jesus is saying here. The prophets in the Old Testament had condemned the priests and the kings and the other prophets for failing to shepherd the people of God. One passage in particular is significant here in this, and that is Ezekiel 34. We'll just read one verse, but the whole chapter itself is worth highlighting. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself... I, I will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. This is a messianic hope. Ezekiel saying the prophet, the priests, and kings, you've all failed the house of Israel. Look at them. They, they, they've gone astray. So God says to through Ezekiel, I will come down and I will shepherd them. I will lead them. I will be their good shepherd. And this is the context, by the way, in John chapter 10, when Jesus stands up in Palestine and says, I'm, I'm that good shepherd. I'm that guy, the one you've been looking for. I'm the good shepherd. And so when he speaks of the lost house of, of Israel, these, these sheep, it makes complete sense within the, the biblical context. Jesus is claiming for himself to be the good shepherd. And so the disciples try to get, get rid of her, just like they try to get the multitude uh, to, 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 to leave whenever Jesus fed them. But Jesus' answer is, my mission is to the lost house of Israel, not to you. Now, before we, we get into how could Jesus be so mean, but, but consider what it is Jesus is saying, not just about the Gentiles, but about Israel. He said the people who claim to be professing God are the ones who are the most lost in this scenario. So much so, the Messiah has to come to rescue them, to shepherd them. to be, They're lost and they need to be found." I mean, we rarely consider the hurtful language that Jesus is using regarding Israel. And that would have been blasphemous to Jewish ears. But nevertheless, Jesus says, you know, now is not the time. My mission is very clear, and that is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But notice her response, verse 25. I'm so glad she's not a 21st century American, aren't you? I mean, this, her response would have gone on Twitter, not to the Lord. Jesus has said, you are not part of the mission. I'm not obligated to do anything for you. But her response in verse 25 is illustrative. But she came, knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Help me. Notice she doesn't give up like most of us would have. Well, I said one prayer. I guess guess that just ain't going to work out then. I got to figure out my own. That is not the pattern we see in the Bible at all. She calls him Lord, thus she affirms his person and power. She doesn't complain. She just keeps begging. She is desperate here, right? If, if, if Moms, you can understand this, right? You, you, you are you're not going to leave until this man hears you out. In fact, notice her language is striking. Help me. Help me. But I thought she was here to help her daughter. Again, I, I think you moms can really appreciate this, can't you? When her daughter hurts she hurts if her daughter needs help she needs help this is so about this is about so much more than just sickness and demonization and so Jesus responds verse 26 it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs well I tell you what this is Jesus meek and mild, isn't it, right? I mean, this is the Jesus you heard growing up as a kid in Sunday school class. You know, Jesus that just, he, he, he's, just he's just a big hug a bear, right? He's just, he just, what a nice Jesus we worship, isn't it? This guy's completely wanting to ignore this woman. And he says, Look, you are nothing but a dog to me. That's exactly what he says in your Bibles in mine. Now, remember there is a cultural context here. The Jews. Are often described as the children of God. You can go all the way back to the Old Testament, it's consistent, Jesus does that here. The Gentiles, in comparison, are often described as dogs. Now, when I say dogs, what I'm not talking about is Fido, what I'm talking about is a wolf, a raging animal. Let me give you a few examples in the Bible of this. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, do not give dogs what is holy, right? And then he compares them to pigs. Don't cast pearls before swine, right? So you see that, that in, in, the, in, in the Jewish world, dogs and pigs were very similar, right? It's the whole point of, of that parable Jesus gives in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Psalm 22, dogs encompass me. This is a messianic psalm uh, about the crucifixion of, of Jesus. Dogs, Gentiles, evil Gentiles surround me. They pierce my hand and feet is there in verse 16. Uh, Psalm 59, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about this city. This is a very common imagery. And remember the story of Jezebel, how she dies? Right? And and she, she she's killed, and then Elijah warned her, the dogs will lick up your blood. Right? That, that that was not a compliment. I don't know how you can confuse it with a compliment, but but you know, it's 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 it's, it's not just any dog. These are, these are wild, dangerous dogs, right? This, this is as low as you can get for Jezebel to go from queen to that. And in terms of a modern world, a good example of this comes from the movie or the book uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. You remember this scene is a very important scene, right? This is where there's, there's a, a mad dog loose. And Atticus is the one that shoots it, right? And you can see his glasses. He has to take them because he's not as good shot as he used to be. And his kids, you know, see him a little differently. But that's a wild dog. And and that dog is dangerous to that community. And so, so when we hear dogs, we understand that in the biblical literature, that's not a compliment. It's not a compliment. However, the mangy wild dog is not what Jesus has in mind here. Because there's a word for that. We can say coyote or wolf or something like that. The word Jesus describes here is a child's pet. In fact, the only time you'll find this word in the New Testament is in this passage right here and its parallels in the Synoptic Gospels. It's a very rarely used word. It describes a child's pet. This is the difference between a wolf and a beagle. So read it again. We expect Jesus to say, I've been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. You are not part of the household of God. You are but a dangerous beast. Instead, what he says, in the context of the house of God, the house of Israel, he describes them as children and Gentiles as pets. A child's pets. So we see that at this time, dogs, pet dogs, were welcomed inside. And we get that. And she picks up on this imagery, doesn't she, in verse 27. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You see? She says, oh, that's the sort of animal I am. Don't you see, Jesus? Even those animals are welcomed to the master's table even if it is mere crumbs. You know, like the child is made to eat something but doesn't want to and sneaks it under the table for Fido. That's a treating of itself. I'll take being a pet in the master's house if it means I'm welcome into the master's house. And aren't those pets who are welcome in? who are well taken care of by their master, aren't they better off for it? Aren't they happier animals? And aren't they happy to enjoy those crumbs? And by the way, I was reading this this week and I couldn't help but think. Your Bible and mine just told us that Jesus was a dog lover and not a cat lover, right? I mean, that's right there in the Bible. Right there in the Bible. You see it? right? He doesn't even compare it to, to to cats, which I don't know of a good cat. He says a dog, right? There are bad dogs. We don't want them. do talking about a dog, right? That, that's that's our dog who passed away last year. Oh, I know. But that's Luther, you know, named after Martin Luther, the, the reformer. He's a good dog, right? He could eat all the crumbs he wanted, right? And usually because... My, my family eats like birds, right? I don't know how they're still alive. I, I eat like a man, right? I eat this amount, they eat this amount. So he, he got a lot of leftovers. But Jesus is against cats in the house. That's all I'm saying, right? You can leave them outside if you want to, preferably not on our property. You can leave cats outside. Jesus is a dog lover, not a cat lover. You cat people who will be meeting me after the service. I've got the Bible on my side. Boom, mic dropped. What were we talking about? But Jesus changes the language on us, doesn't he? He mentioned the children's food, but then he takes us back to the master's table. Children are as subject to the head of the house as the pets are. You see, in that sense, in that context, she steps into the master's house. That's all she wants. She's desperate. I'm okay with being a pet. I'm not entitled to anything. All I want are crumbs. All I want is grace. At no point does she throw a fit or demand her rights. She knows that she's a filthy Phoenician Gentile. She's owed nothing from this Nazarene. And she is content with that. What humility we see modeled here. Clearly, she's not a 21st century American. This is the opposite of the way we would respond If Jesus said something like this, by the way, Jesus is saying something like this to us. We would stomp our feet. We would cross our arms. We would recite our spiritual resume, right? I'm a good person. I have a good attendance record. I'm a loving husband. I'm a sacrificial mother. I'm a hard worker. I pay my bills. I'm responsible. I have a good reputation. I pray. I read my Bible. I worship. I have a good theology. I give. I go. I do. I'm owed something by Jesus. We believe we deserve the master's food. We believe the set at the head of the master's table. When in reality, we are unworthy of the master's crumbs. So what does Jesus do in verse 28? Oh, woman, great is your faith. We have done for you as you have desired. He highlights her lowly Mega faith. That word word for mega is the same word used to describe the storm in chapter 14. It's a massive storm. A deadly storm here is a massive faith, an incredible amount of faith. And her story mirrors that of another Gentile, the centurion with the servant. He comes and Jesus has the pause and say, I've not seen such, such mega faith in all of Israel. I haven't seen any of that. But I see it here with this Gentile. So too, she has a mega faith. Thus he heals her daughter, thus healing her. So I think the question of the text is, are we or do we have a desperate faith like this? And the problem with most Christians today is that we are not desperate enough for Jesus. Maybe there are some here today, you continue to refuse to respond to Christ because you're not desperate enough. You're here because you feel obligated to. You're here because it's part of the weekly pattern. You're here because you were invited. It's not a desperate faith. Look at your life and you can rationalize that, yeah, things may not be as they ought to be or way things I, I wish they were, but I get along just fine. Everyone else seems to be getting along without all this sort of Jesus. It's just not a desperate faith. Maybe you're here and... You've been baptized, you went swimming in the church, you walked the aisle, you went to the camps, you did everything you were supposed to do. You've got John 3.16 memorized. What else more do you need to do? And what you find is a stagnant faith because it's not a desperate faith. What we have here is one content with crumbs, one who is content with grace and is given a feast. Her humility makes her great. Oh, that we would learn. Her story. That what the Lord praises is a desperate faith that says, if I have not Jesus, I have nothing at all. But if I have Jesus and only Jesus, I have all that I need. Lord, have mercy on me, she cries. Lord, help me, son of David. Let's pray.